Today's episode is presented by Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is a transformative way to work out. Sweat Connected has a mission to help you feel your best. Each expert instructor brings their signature method directly to you, wherever you are in the world, via Zoom. When you take a Sweat Connected class, you are able to interact with your instructor and the other participants in class, just like you would in a live studio experience. Whether you have been a group fitness participant for years or are newer, you will feel at home with Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is exclusively offering our listeners 50% off their first class by going to www.sweatconnected.com and using the code POD, that's code POD at sweatconnected.com for 50% off your first class. Sweat Connected for all levels, all ages, all sizes, and all humans. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of the So-Called Oreos podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the awkwardness, hardship, and hilarity that comes along with society labeling you white on the inside and black on the outside, also known as an Oreo. I'm your host today, Amari Pollard. It's just me, guys, um, because sorry if that's a little disappointing, but I just want to get a little nerdy and academic with y'all about intellectual property and critical race theory. For those of you who don't know, I'm currently in my last year of graduate school at UNC, Whoop, whoop. And a requirement of my program is to take media law. Being who I am, I of course became really interested in the intersection of intellectual property law and race and how the system, much like everything else in this world, is an extension of white supremacy. So on this episode, I will be chatting with Anjali Botts, an associate professor at Boston College, where she teaches courses in race, rhetoric law, and media studies. Much like her work, our conversation will explore how intellectual property in the U.S. works to form American ideals around race, citizenship, and property. We'll also get to talk a little bit about her new book, The Color of Creatorship, Intellectual Property, Race, and the Making of Americans. As you know, our episodes are now being recorded through Zoom, so I apologize in advance if anything sounds a little weird at some point. Okay, let's get into it. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with IP law, and the intersection of race, would you just mind giving a quick explanation of what it is and how they might participate in the system during their everyday lives? Because I don't know if everyone's like, oh, I wonder if this is a part of like trademark or copyright. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the thing that IP lawyers are always uh, low, low key frustrated about that um, trademark gets described as copyright and vice versa. And um, who knows what a patent is anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a great question. Intellectual property law, that term is really an umbrella term, and it describes areas of law that are discrete um, and really very independent. And those laws really govern knowledge production and the circulation of uh, knowledge and goods. Um, so let me just break down um, some of what's in that category. This isn't really an exhaustive list, but it's it's a, most of the big areas of trademark law. So uh, in included in, um, did I say trademark law? I meant intellectual property law. Um, so uh, intellectual property law includes copyright law, which governs creative works. It includes patent law, which governs inventions. Uh, it governs, tr- governs trademark law, which you probably notice is a little bit different than the first two areas of law that we're talking about because it deals with marks in commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the three major areas uh, that we talk about when we're talking about intellectual property law. But there's other areas in there um, as well, like unfair competition, or we might talk about rights of publicity. Uh, so there are subsets of intellectual property law that don't fall under those three umbrella categories. Um, but intellectual property has become this catch-all to describe um, a lot of areas of law that are really dealing with with a lot of intangible kinds of property. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we see it? Well, we see intellectual property basically everywhere. We see it in every on on brands for products that we use. We see it in articles of clothing that we buy. We see it uh, in our books, right? Because our books are copyrighted. Um, Our foods have brand labels on them. Our entertainment uh, might invoke trademark questions or right of publicity questions, or if it's a cartoon or anime, copyright questions. Um, Our appliances might be patented. So intellectual property is really everywhere. And I think we underestimate the extent to which we 
engage with it on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm, 100%. And I think it's um, funny because when my co-host and I started the the podcast, we just wanted to kind of like reclaim the term Oreo um, and kind of through that um, reclaiming, just dispel stereotypes. But it wasn't until this class where I was like, wait, I feel like this is this is actually a part of like intellectual property, copyright law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so like, again, like at no point, I don't think we ever throughout the process of creating the podcast thought about it um, in those terms. And I was just wondering if you can like explain how IP has functioned in a way that um, helps, you know, harmful images, which is why we actually started the podcast in the first place. Yeah. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit here and just uh, in order to answer this question and Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how I study what I study and why I came to it. So this is really a question of method and um, intellectual approach. Uh, In the in the 1970s and 1980s, there were um, and there was a group of legal scholars that kind of was like, this whole civil rights movement thing did not work out as planned. Um, we saw the failures of affirmative action. We saw the failures of busing, the rollback of civil rights, and just this um, investment in ideas of reverse racism. Ian Haney-Lopez talks about how George Wallace uh, was one of the first to talk about this idea of reverse racism. So the 1970s and 1980s are really disappointing, I think, for a lot of uh, African-American legal theorists and also people of color more generally in this country because the promises of civil rights aren't really met. So this interdisciplinary movement started to form led by folks like Derek Bell, Lonnie Guineer, Charles Lawrence, Uh, These folks were really interested in understanding uh, how the law itself is a conservative institution that is invested in whiteness. Um, And it is that investment in whiteness that keeps us from realizing the potential of rights-based remedies. So even though we had emancipation and even though we had desegregation, those did not play out in social and cultural spaces in practice. Cheryl Harris writes this really famous piece called Whiteness is Property. And in that piece, she traces how property law has Um, over time really evolved in a kind of war of position with anti-racist maneuvers. So anytime anti-racists succeed, the law kind of adjusts in order to take back some of those gains to normalize whiteness again, to get back uh, to a kind of stasis. Um, So I came to be curious about how the process that Harris is talking about applies uh, to intellectual property law. And I think the short answer to this question is um, the question that you asked is that I think intellectual property law is invested in protecting whiteness in the same way that property law is. Um, it's protected or it's interest invested in protecting white understandings of knowledge for white people as property holders. Now, I want to stop short of like imbuing the law with thoughts and feelings, right? I don't want to personify the law because this is precisely what Lopez says in White by Law. He's like, we have to remember that the law is made up of people. So, you know, we see this in that film Selma. The people that enforce law, they don't just go away when you make changes. So I think intellectual property law is invested historically um, in understanding and protecting what white people understand to be knowledge. And I don't know that we've gotten to a place of really diversifying that and embracing um, the artistry of people of color in a way um, that one can be protected under law and two, encourages us to change those laws. Um, So at a meta level, and I know we're going to get in the weeds in a moment, this looks uh, in my read as presenting people of color as less than human, as um, less capable than white people of creative thought, um, as incapable of preventing inventive ideas if we speak in the context of traditional knowledge, um, and also appearing in uh, stereotyped ways in cultural spaces. And we'll talk about that a little more when we talk about um, trademarks. I imagine we'll get into the trademark conversation as well. Going off of what you said, it's really interesting just based off of like how um, whiteness, white people might perceive, you know, the thoughts and creativity of people of color, black people, brown people. And it's interesting too, because there is a long history of the intellectual property being stolen and then taken. So even though it may not reflect in the law, clearly there is some, they do see the value of, of that intellect. Um, 
and make the law so that they can profit off of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had um, the pleasure of uh, being on a panel with, um, with Professor KJ Green and um, Latif Matima and Tarika Carrington a couple of weeks ago um, at Roger Williams University, uh, you know, Roger Williams Law School. And, um, and this is one of the things we were talking about, right? There's this real decoupling of the humans from the work. So when we talk about cultural appropriation, that's part of what we're talking about, right? Like we want to take what we want to take, but we don't want to protect your people. Um, and that is something that we see just time and time again in American history. Uh, the 1619 Project did a great podcast on this um, and on the theft of black music uh, that I highly recommend. The podcast version is, is really riveting. I think. Yeah. Um, and so obviously like going back to like Oreos and reclaiming terms, Oreo is not the most offensive term that you can choose to reclaim. It's pretty mild <laughs> in the list of offensive <laughs> terms. Um, but I am wondering like, I'm for our listeners who don't know of other like main, um, or just like prominent cases of people trying to reclaim terms or disparaging marks. Um, could mm -hmm. you just speak on like what other efforts have been made or are being made in that realm? Sure. We could probably, you know, sit here and brainstorm some colloquial examples of this, but I'll give two that I've written about and I, I think are historically important ones in intellectual property law. Um, one involves uh, a recent case that went up to the Supreme Court, uh, Mattel versus Tam. It, it involves a trademark, a trademark dispute about uh, a trademark around a trademark for the band, The Slants. And the person that is the front man for the band, Simon Tam, wanted to use that term in a way that he found to be um, resistive and his listeners and supporters found to be resistive. Now, this is a really interesting case because it produced quite a lot of dissent in the Asian American community uh, between um, folks that had maybe had an experience of internment or were of an older generation where they remember that term being circulated and used in really violent ways. Um, and younger people that are like, well, we can reclaim this and we don't have those historical memories that you do. Um, so I want to I want to point to two sides of that. One is that Tam is really trying to reclaim this term, and he's like, we can use this term slants, um, and it's okay, and we're gonna. Um, give it a completely different meaning than the way that has been used historically. And that ends up having enormous implications both within the Asian American community and also for trademark law more generally. Um, and if we were to get into the weeds of this, um, we would talk uh, about how it also implicates, ends up in implicating indigenous peoples uh, in the case of the Washington football team who will not be named. Another example I could give you is of Marshawn Lynch. I think Marshawn Lynch does a lot of really interesting work with his nickname, Beast Mode. Um, I think of Beast Mode as a reclamation of historical tropes around Black bestiality that really uh, gained steam in the, in the post-emancipation era, in the Jim Crow era. So I think that, you know, the way that Marshawn Lynch performs, the way that he exists in the world, the way he uses that name um, is a way of saying you know, we need to complicate how we think about black bestiality and maybe rethink that stereotype altogether. And um, even though I'm not explicitly saying that, you let my performance speak for itself. And so, I mean, I'm, I started doing this research for class. And so I was reading a whole bunch of articles um, and a lot of them went back to Tam and other examples, but it, it didn't necessarily make it seem like, like the process of reclamation was very active or like commonly happening. And I was just wondering, like, are there like a lot of efforts for, of just like regular people um, looking to trademark or copyright disparaging marks? This is a really interesting question. On the one hand, I would argue um, that, yes, there's this long history of disparaging trademarks being used and circulated and protected in this country. On the other hand, 
there was this interesting question presented at a conference that I organized, the, or co-organized, the Race and Intellectual Property Conference. And there were some scholars who were working on the question of what would happen in this post-TAM moment uh, when disparaging trademarks were no longer unconstitutional. And there were some registrations, for instance, the N-word has historically been uh, not something that's protectable in the context of trademark law in a, on a, in a trademark context. Um, and so there were like applications around the N-word. But if we want to get into the finer grain of like, is there now a flood of disparaging trademarks? I think that's a more complicated question. But at a general level, I would say that there is a long history of disparaging trademarks in this country. And there is a long history of people of color really being subordinated in those trademarks. You kind of already covered it a bit in your explanation of just the TAM case, but why might marginalized people seek to reappropriate disparaging marks that have historically been used to like strip them of their humanity? Uh, Judith Butler has a really great chapter on this where she is taking up a conversation about the First Amendment and what critical race theorists call words that wound when they're talking about hate crimes. Her argument, um, in short, is that whether a word is disparaging or not, whether it is violent or not, that is a socially constructed question. It's not like words come out of nowhere. Um, They have meaning, right? And there are other theorists that have written about this as well, about the cultural evolution of words. I study rhetoric. um, That uh, is a really central premise of what I do, right? Words have meanings in contexts. They don't have meanings uh, in and of themselves. So there's space for us as individuals, as humans, uh, in cultural spaces to really say... I'm not going to be bothered by that word, or I'm going to choose to use that word in a way that's different from the way that you use that word. Um, And you talked about that with the word Oreo, right? So um, why is that helpful? Well, I mean, you could probably speak to this from your own experience, but there's power in that, right? Like there's power in saying, I'm going to use this word in a way that doesn't disenfranchise me, that isn't violent towards me. Um, And I think that reclaiming that power is really helpful. I also think that there is a sense that we can reclaim our mental health in some ways, right? This is the reclaiming of words is a refusal of the weaponization of words against humans. Um, I want to flash back here to a case that comes out of California, out of San Francisco, and the one of the responses to the weaponization of the term dyke. So one of the early um, cases, trademark cases involving reclamation was a group called Dykes and Bikes that was like, hey, we're going to take this word back and that's how we're going to identify. And if you have a problem with it, that's your problem, not our problem. And so I think that there is a visceral sense of well-being for a lot of groups in taking these words and saying, you know, I'm going to use this word. We could talk about the N-word in the context of rap and hip hop, right? Like that's always, I think, the most prominent and controversial example as well. But I think that, like I said, we could brainstorm a bunch of examples of terms that are disparaging that people have tried to reclaim and why they're so invested in reclaiming them. Yeah, I think that that mental health part of it, I had never thought about it, but like in you saying that, I think my co-host can attest to this too. I think it's been a very big healing process for us, but having the space to talk about situations that have happened um, with us and kind of like reclaiming the term and also realizing that there's nothing wrong with us. Um, it says this term says more about other people using it. But you you did write an article about uh, disidentification. And I was wondering if you'd mind explaining that to for listeners um, and how that process might help of marginalized groups reclaim their voices within the IP system. Absolutely. So this word disidentification is one of those, you know, scholarly words you have to use to look fancy um, because people think that, you know, you're smarter when you use the, the bigger, bigger the word. word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is really describing a really relatable concept, though, and something that people um 
engage with on the day-to-day basis. So disidentification is a word that uh, the late Jose Esteban Munoz, who was a performance studies scholar, uses to speak theoretically about the ways that queers of color move in the world. So he is writing about drag and he is writing about um, queers of color performing in the world. Um, And he's writing specifically about their gender performances and their race performances, right? And and um, the complexities of those. So I want to I want to trace this idea of identification back um, theoretically. It really comes out of conversations about the notion of ideology that are happening in critical theory. And um, Louis Althusser is a scholar who talks about the idea of interpolation. Um, and interpolation for him is this idea of um, getting normed into particular kinds of ideological contexts. Uh, so he asked the question of uh, how, as individuals, we get incorporated into or or pulled into um, the regime of the state. And he gives this example of a police officer and the police officer is like, hey, you, and the person turns around. And then he says uh, that is part of the process of being interpolated into the state. Now, Munoz is interested in saying that interpolation is more complicated than Althusser would have us believe. And his argument is that sometimes we, yeah, turn around, but we're angry about it or we're resistive about it or we have qualms uh, about what is happening or we don't follow the rules in some way. So that's really what disidentification is describing. Disidentification is describing how sometimes we can both reinforce certain kinds of ideological norms and also break with them at the same time, right? So Marshawn Lynch is a great example of this. Marshawn Lynch can both use this beast mode name that carries, I'm sure, a lot of racial subtext for people, right? What happens when we think about black bestiality, um, what happens, you know, when I say we, I mean as individuals, right? Different individuals come to that term with different understandings of the word beast and different feelings about its application. Um, So, you know, I think he's a great example of how a person can both use that term and also contest it at the same time. And that's what disidentification is, um, in my uh, estimation, referring to the sense with which we both do the thing that we maybe don't want to do or use the term or let that term be applied to us, but also say, yeah, but I'm going to push back against it at the same time. And this doesn't look like what you think it should look like. In the article, I really liked the the example of uh, the mammy stereotype and uh, the Andy mm-hmm. Warhol image and kind of how with that term, the mammy really does take away the femininity of the black woman. And she's kind of seen outside of that realm. And with that image, you see it kind of brought back into the term mammy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I like that you brought up that example too, because there's a tendency um, in these examples. And I think in law in general, you know, to get stuck on examples of men. Men take up a lot of creative space. Men take up a lot of space, I think, yes. in a lot of in a lot in of general. different ways. But you know, we have all these histories of men creating art and inventing and so on and so forth. So I think it's really important as well to highlight uh, the role of women of color, generally of black women specifically when we're talking about disidentification, but also uh, race in the context of intellectual property law. There is a conversation, I think, to be had about trans people and intellectual property. There is a conversation to be had uh, about uh, queer people and intellectual property. And I think those sorts of nuanced uh, intersectional race and gender conversations are really important as well. And we talked about this earlier, just about how IP is kind of just an extension of whiteness in itself. And I'm not sure if necessarily people think about when they're talking about white supremacy, maybe they are, and I'm just underestimating, um, but I know I haven't necessarily 
always thought about IP as being a part of white supremacy. And I was just wondering, how does IP law uphold those values? I mentioned Cheryl Harris earlier and her project about whiteness as property. I think that's a great way to start um, thinking about this question. The way that I approach the question of white supremacy in the context of intellectual property law is kind of historical one where I take a look at really important moments in intellectual property law, but also in public culture over the course of approximately 100, uh, 200 years. And in doing that, what I would argue is that copyright law, patent law, and trademark law each have these anchoring thematics that seem to like come up over and over again that animate the area of law. And those organizing themes are really centered on white experiences of humanity and white experiences of creation. So um, I think that intellectual property law in general has this property-based investment in maintaining structures that protect white creation. I also think that uh, doctrinally we see these themes emerge uh, that, that functionally do that. And the way they functionally do that is uh, twofold. The first way is, is that they imagine particular people as more human than other people. I think that is something that is a subtext in a lot of intellectual property cases that we underplay when we say, hey, this law is race neutral. Um, it is applying the same rights to everybody. And it's like, yeah, but also the way that you have written these rules doesn't account for the fact that not all modes of creation are created equal, right? They're not all the same. Uh, and then the second way is through uh, citizenship. So I think there's this real sense of American identity that's tied in with intellectual property, right? Who do we think of when we talk about America? We think about people that are inventors and creators, right? Like who wrote the um, Declaration of Independence? Who um, invented the light bulb, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a history there. There's a history of American citizenship and the American dream and American grit and ruggedness that I very much is, I believe is wrapped up with white supremacy. It is wrapped up in our understandings of who is and isn't meant to be a quote unquote American. And when I use the word, uh, the term white supremacy there, I want to be clear that I am not only referring to like KKK, you know, um, wearing white sheets sort of situations, the way that Harris talks about white supremacy is to uh, frame it as a system in which white people hold power. Uh, white supremacy is about power. It is not only about lynchings and cross burnings and terrorizing people. It is also about the day-to-day -day functioning of power relations in the United States and how power relations structure our lives. But how can a person of color even begin to find power in a system like that, which was not actually created for them? You know, that's such a great question. Um, I'm teaching a class right now called uh, Joy Activism Justice in part to answer this question, right? The question of how we avoid political despair in this moment. I think there are a, a lot of um, great writings that are coming out right now that address this question. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown comes to mind in her work um, about what it looks like to embrace transformative justice, uh, what it looks like to find joy and pleasure in systems that oppress us. Um, and I just taught a piece by um, Derek Bell that emphasizes this as well, the need for us to maintain um, as people of color, as black people, as brown people, et cetera, um, to maintain a sense of joy and pleasure despite the what Bell would say is the permanence of racism in America. So what does that look like? Well, I think there, in the context of IP, there's, uh, there are a lot of ways that people of color have and continue to find um, power in that system. Um, I gave the example of Marshawn Lynch 
Um, another example I like to talk about is Prince, um, because Prince, I think, is an artist, a musician who does really groundbreaking work in confronting record companies. Prince is interested in very loudly and performatively being like, you know, this system of music contracts and, you know, record labels is really exploitative of black people. And there's this long history of exploitation. Let me uh, show you that by changing my name to this symbol and writing the word slave on my face. Um, That is very much a critique and call out of the way the industry music practices work. It is also a way of claiming power in that space. It is a way of creating leverage for himself. And ultimately, Prince does end up getting his master records back or his masters back. And that's really important. That's, I think, an important turning point in the way that black artists are able to negotiate. I don't want to suggest that he's the only person doing that because I don't think that he is. I think he's one example of how people of color um, create leverage for themselves and create possibilities uh, for reworking intellectual property law. The case involving Marvin Gaye's estate around blurred lines is also a really interesting example to think about in this context. Because, you know, Marvin Gaye's estate is really like, hey, we're not going to let this this guy Robin Thicke, you know, benefit. It's a complicated case um, because, you know, T.I. and Pharrell are also co-writers on that song. But it's an example of how people of color, um, Black people in particular, have been able to mobilize intellectual property systems in a way that's beneficial. We could talk about Indigenous peoples. That Washington football team case happened just before Mattel versus Tam. So that trademark was going to be canceled. Um, We can talk about uh, copyright context. We can talk about patent cancellations uh, as well and um, the production of spaces in the context of India, a database that essentially uses traditional knowledge libraries as a way to demonstrate that there's prior art that prevents patents, that should prevent patenting in a specific space. Um, And so those are all examples of how how people of color are like, no, we're not doing this thing on your terms. Uh, We would like to rewrite the rules. We would like to contest the rules. And you bringing up examples of like Prince and Marvin Gaye made me think of Ed Sheeran had used a part of TLC's song and Mm -hmm. I watch Real Housewives of Atlanta. So I was (laughs) like, Candy needs to get her money. And I know Megan Thee Stallion has had some issues with that too. And I think in a weird way, I mean, I think everyone has complicated feelings around social media, but I think that at least for those cases, it had it did bring attention to what was going on and kind of amplify that. But this conversation leads me into my next question is that like, I feel, I feel as though people are taught to create like the importance of creation and how to create, mm-hmm. but no one's taught like what, like how to protect your works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, even my own lack of understanding of like the law until I took my media law class and was like, oh, I don't know anything. And I was just wondering like, why don't you think people are taught how to protect their work and like how can people have equal opportunity within the system if they don't have any clue how it actually works mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i have a lot to say as you can imagine on uh where and how education fails us uh, as a general matter um and fails people of color as a more specific matter i I think part of the reason we don't talk about how to protect our work is because of this fantasy that artwork is somehow creative work and more generally is somehow above that, right? Like it's this realm of magical inspiration in which we do things, you know, because we love them. And no one really wants to talk about the fact that even if you're an artist, you have to eat, right? And you have to pay the rent. So I think part of this is a desire to like not sully the thing with talk of logistics and talk of law and talk about all these, talk about money, right? Because this is a context in which how dare you talk about money? This is like such a sacrosanct process, creating artwork or making an invention. And we have all these imaginaries around it. I think another thing is um, that, you know, for people of color in particular, power in 
in this country and everywhere really is about access to information. It is about access to networks. And unless and until you have other people of color that are like, hey, we need to talk about this thing. There's this whole boys drinking beer conversation that's happening around X thing that you don't have access to. What happens when conversations are happening outside of the spheres that people of color have access to? Well, it means that they don't know what to do in order to protect their rights. And what I want to highlight here is that's by design. That is a feature, not a bug of the system. Right. Like we live in a country in which systematic illiteracy was part of the plan of Jim Crow. We live in a country in which disenfranchisement of um, indigenous people and Asian Americans and, you know, Mexican Americans and so on and so forth was part of the plan. So I think that part of this is also a structural issue. It is a structural issue related to the fact that we have built a system that makes it hard for people of color to access information um, and to access laws about what they need to do in order to create. Yeah, and I feel like a a feature of that is you also have to have access to wealth. Big news, so-called Oreos listeners. You can now connect with us as well as the wider so-called Oreos community on a deeper level by signing up for our Patreon. Through our tiered membership, you can join our Discord community chat, watch live streams, gain access to bloopers, and so much more. Speaking of so much more, we also recently dropped some so-called Oreos merchandise just in time for your holiday shopping. To learn more about both our Patreon and merch, head over to patreon.com slash so-called Oreos and so-called Oreos.bigcartel.com. Can we just talk about the cost of what it takes to like protect your intellectual property? Because that's that to me, it's like, okay, you have this, but if you don't have the money, you're just not, it's not going to happen for you. Absolutely. Wealth begets wealth, right? And um, I mentioned I mentioned that talk that I did um, not that long ago, and KJ Green was talking about some of the structural ways that copyright law keeps people out. So um, people of color out. And that is, it was literacy for a long time, but registration requirements, fees, um, technical language, right? Like technocracies are not meant for the average person. They are meant for people with wealth, with knowledge, um, and so on to have a leg up. Like that is why they work the way that they do. Um, And I think this is all the more reason that we have to think about how we help to support our people of color in communities getting access to these systems. Tanya Evans and um, Shantavia Johnson both do fabulous work about this in terms of thinking about like, how do we get creators of color at the table? How do we get more um, IP lawyers of color advocating for them, right? These are real structural questions that are related to um, resources and education and um, bodies in the room for these sorts of conversations. I wonder, like, why why do you think it has taken so long for critical race theory to make its way into the conversation? Mm, I think that's a great question. Um, I want to lead off by saying lots of people have been doing great work in this area for a long time, like for decades. So if we talk about, you know, not to... Not to um, be too literal about this, but like the the so-called elders of IP and race, I think we're talking about folks like Keith Aoki, like Rosemary Coombe, like Maggie Chan, uh, KJ Green I've mentioned, um, Madhavi Sundar, Sonia Katyal. Um, these folks are all really well-established scholars who've been fighting this fight for a long time. Um, but like anything, you know, I think movements take time to build and they also take momentum. So I don't know that it's that it has taken a long time per se for um, this to be given attention. I think perhaps it has taken a long time to have a critical mass of people um, at the right moment when the conversation can be taken up. 
Um, so I think of that as a generational accumulation sort of conversation um, and also a conversation about the readiness of publics to take up that conversation. I don't know that the legal academy or that IP scholars in the legal academy were quite ready to have this conversation um, with the kind of depth that it's happening now, but I am really thrilled that people are willing to have that conversation now. And I'm thrilled um, that some of the folks that I've mentioned um, are getting platforms to be able to speak about those questions. You know, I'm relatively uh, new to this space in terms of having these conversations, but, um, you know, I know there are people that have been trying to have these conversations for a long time, and I am glad that they are able uh, to do that now. So um, I think that a lot of this is a question of momentum, and I think a lot of it is a question of critical mass, um, but also that we have to remember that this is a conversation that has been going on for a while. And if this is a place where people are interested, um, I have a piece with a co-author, uh, Dean Deidre Keller from um, Florida A&M University. Uh, it, we wrote a piece called Critical Race IP that really traces the histories of um, race and intellectual property law. Um, and the different spaces that these conversations are happening. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, one of the things that contributes to momentum is a condensation of ideas in a certain space or around a certain term. So I think that the, you know, we talked about the structure of intellectual property law as including different areas of law. I think part of the thing that's happening right now is that people that have been working in different spaces are able to come together and have these conversations collectively. So it's like, you know, the folks that were working on indigenous knowledge are talking to the trademark folks or talking to the copyright folks. And that also produces a kind of critical mass um, in the form of a, a movement that's more coherent to outside publics. And I think we, I think we've been seeing this, recently more so, but like in different uh, industries of more people paying attention and like trying to critically think about race. And I think we, we've, over the summer, we saw like an influx of people trying to address it for like IP law. I'm wondering, and the other co-hosts and I have talked about this of like how I think we think America is only capable of concentrating on a subject for like three months. And I think like <laughs> after that, it's just, um, and that's only been proven, I think this last time do you think this momentum will continue to build or do you think there's like a threshold for when people are like, okay, we did the critical race theory thing? You're asking this question of a career critical race theorist. So my answer is going to be a little bit biased here. Um, I like to think we are at a point in history where we can sustain this momentum. I like to think that the demographics of this country are shifting um, and the power dynamics of this country are shifting in a way that gives um, Gen Xers and millennials more social power than they have ever had. I like to think that that creates possibilities for sustaining these conversations about critical race theory in the legal academy and in black studies and in ethnic studies um, and so on. Uh, practically speaking, I mean, I think that you point to a real um, issue about the ebbs and flows of these conversations. There was an eight-year period there, I don't know if you noticed, where folks thought we were post-racial. And in that period, it was, you know, that was an interesting period for race scholarship because I think it was a moment that race scholars could say, you know, I know that you all thought it was good and well in the Clinton era, but, you know, brace yourselves because things are going to get bad after the end of Obama's second term. And I think liberals really didn't want to believe that. Now we're trying to get a president out of office. I think if the Republican Party continues to go in the direction that it's going, I think if we have the kinds of political outcomes that we've been seeing, right, these contested political outcomes that that um, for the first time in a lot of people's lives are really like they're so transparently about power grabs. I think as long as we have those, these conversations continue. And it doesn't seem like those, it's going to slow down anytime soon, even, you know, when said president is out of office, everyone, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people looking to Mm. climb the ranks. I, I hope that you are not correct about that, but I fear that you are correct about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to practice being more hopeful <laughs> about the, about the future. Hope is not required. Hope is not required. Um, yes, but you recently came out with a new book, and I want to talk to you about that: um, the color of creatorship, intellectual property, race, and the making of Americans. Uh, could you just provide a little a little summary for our listeners um, and discuss why you thought? Well, I mean, you study this for a living, but like why you thought it was important to um, intensely explore intellectual property citizenship. So I gave a little bit of a preview of this earlier when I talked about um, the anchoring themes of copyright, patent and trademark law. Um, what the book does is it it takes these three areas of law and it says, you know, what is happening racially in these areas of law and what does it look like? What I conclude is that um, IP law is structured by white supremacy. We've been talking that for, about that for um, a minute here. And that we can actually identify these themes that look like they are race neutral, but in practice play out in ways that are not race neutral. So in the context of copyright law, I write about an idea called uh, or the idea of true imagination, who possesses true imagination and who doesn't. In the context of patent law, I talk about the idea of human progress. Um, I talk about who we imagine in patent cases and in patent imaginaries in the United States narratives of patents, uh, who we imagine to have the capacity to produce human progress. Um, and I think you need only think back as far as the Enlightenment, right, the Kants and the Hegels of the world to know that they really were not on board for people of color being part of human progress narratives, right? Like they thought Europeans uh, were superior. I was just teaching about this um, a couple of days ago. And then in the context of trademark law, I look at uh, the idea of the um, consumer gaze. And I'm really um, drawing on film theory here, Laura Mulvey's work on the male gaze, um, to think about how white masculinity implicitly structures the gaze at trademark law, right? Like black women wouldn't be like, let's do this Aunt Jemima thing, right? Like that's not, that wouldn't be. Not, would not be us. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So these are the three themes that I identify. And I'm also, as a related question, interested in seeing how our, um, racial understandings of intellectual property change over time. So I essentially divide these conversations um, about these themes into three temporal eras. What ends up happening is um, seems to track with the way that we're talking about race more generally in the country. So the first era I look at is um, what I call the citizen creator era, and that's an era of formal exclusion. It's an era when the Patent and Copyright Act limited ownership of patents and copyrights uh, to uh, residents and citizens. So this is how we get that idea of citizenship, that citizenship is explicitly linked with copyright and patent law. The thing that I learned, though, as I was doing this research, was that the idea of citizenship is not, it doesn't go away after that era of um, formal exclusion of of people of color. So um, what ends up happening in my estimation is that um, intellectual property citizenship becomes a trope that organizes how we think about and narrativize intellectual property law. Over time, that also structures our intellectual property cases. So the second era I look at is what I call the race liberal creator era. Um, and in that period, I'm interested in how racial liberalism shapes our understandings of creatorship in the context of intellectual property law. And then the third era is the post-racial creator era. And that's an era um, in which um, I argue we claim that our intellectual property laws are race neutral, right? They're accessible to everybody. This is part of President Obama's platform. But at the same time, we are demonizing people abroad, um, particularly Asians, for being bad intellectual property citizens. And this, a similar thing happens in the race liberal era. Um, that's an era in which 
um, I think what happens in the civil rights movement is really happening in the context of intellectual property law. That we think that we're making all these huge strides of, of equality towards equality in intellectual property, but in practice, there are all these moves that continue these exclusionary practices. Um, sampling is the example that comes to mind. Um, we could also talk about the patenting of um, medical um, treatments and inventions that come out of traditional knowledge. But, you know, the the um, zeitgeist of globalization is, you know, we embrace other cultures, we respect other cultures, but practically speaking, we're like, oh, sampling looks like stealing. And we think, you know, bioprospecting is a thing. And so there's this replication of racial and colonial narratives in a way that I think is um, extremely problematic. And, you know, on the topic of, of citizenship, I, my parents are, are, are Jamaican. So I think I've, and just as like a, a, a black, and I think anyone, you know, any black person, any person of color in this country, maybe probably has this conversation with themselves about like maybe not feeling American enough or being considered like a part of the country and the conversation I felt like you in your book, um, there's this really good quote that I feel like summed it up nicely in a way that I could I could never <laughs> so eloquently put. But um, you write that citizenship is culturally negotiated concept through which certain individuals are included slash excluded from the body politic when it intersects with intellectual property discourse, as it has for hundreds of years. Citizenship operates as a discursive vehicle for excluding racially marginalized group from legal practices of knowledge production and ownership. Um, and I was just wondering if you could speak more to that um, and what it means for, for marginalized people in this country. Absolutely. I think you're spot on to, to talk about that and those assimilative processes. We, ha we certainly have them uh, in the Indian context. We have our own acronym. Um, it's ABCD American Born Confused Desi. Um, that's, that's what the American born mm -hmm. folks get called, right? So there's um, this tracks, I think, for people of color across identities. You know, I mentioned that idea in the post-racial creator era of the good citizen and the bad citizen in the context of intellectual property. That's really what I'm trying to get at here. Um, Jessica Silby and others, folks like Madhavi Sundar, have talked about the relationship between intellectual property and citizenship. Like I said, it's hard to imagine America without talking about invention. It's hard to think about America without uh, talking about Hollywood. Would, right? Like there's all these different sites of um, intellectual property production that, that implicate uh, these questions of citizenship, I would argue. Um, and they also implicate, they implicate citizenship because uh, they're really about who is it is following the rules and who is not following the rules. Um, the way that I think that intellectual property intersects with citizenship is that we have, we have these narratives in our heads um, that we, these mythologies that we take up about what invention looks like in practice, right? It's, we have this myth um, that lots of people have written about the myth of the lone inventor, that the inventor is, you know, a white man in a room by himself, that the light bulb goes off and then the invention is born. I mean, I think we have watched this, uh, the coronavirus vaccines being made over the course of a year. That is not how invention is working, right, in this moment. That's not how innovation is working. Nonetheless, we have, I think, these implicit ideas that structure who we think is following the rules of intellectual property and who is not. In the race liberal era, one reason that sampling becomes such a lightning rod for controversy is because of the negotiation of uh, urban blackness. Black men um, are perceived as threat, and there is this push um, to criminalize black men. So sampling has to be read, I would argue, in that context, in the 
in the context of attempts to deprive black men of their full humanity, of their full citizenship rights. Um, so that's an example of how citizenship, right, our, our refusal to acknowledge that some people are full citizens, um, that black men are full citizens, or um, that Mexican Americans are full citizens, that that then seeps into the way that we think about intellectual property um, and who is right in the context of intellectual property. In the really famous case in which Bismarcky gets sued by Gilbert O'Sullivan, Bismarcky comes to represent in that case, I think, everything that America is afraid of about black people in that moment. And that is really problematic. It's really problematic because it means that the judge can project a bunch of stuff onto Bismarcky that's not about the art, that's not about the music. And the court, that court case starts with the line, thou shalt not steal. And even though most cases of that involved sampling or that involved some sort of copyright infringement had been settled out of court prior to then, this case becomes about criminality. Um, so that I think is very much intertwined with the way that we think about citizenship um, and cannot be divorced from who we understand to be uh, good and bad as American publics. And we have to be careful of the ways that those cultural stereotypes and and our more generalized uh, white supremacy, internalized white supremacy and racism uh, comes to structure intellectual property itself and citizenship in that context. I think sampling is a real accessible uh, example, though, because, you know, most people are familiar with the histories of the war on uh, the war on drugs and the criminalization of black men and um, mandatory minimum sentencing and so on. What I do is I really map that onto these conversations about intellectual property. I say, you know, what's happening with race and then how does it and race and citizenship and how does that seep in to how we then become come to discipline people for for their intellectual property actions? It's all connected. It's all connected. Um, I feel like I could ask you a million more questions, but <laughs> I, I won't. I'll just leave off with one more question for you. They say history is written by the victors. So does that mean IP law is responsible for why marginal groups um, have such legal and official say in like the historical narratives of this country? You know, I try not to be one for simplistic binaries and causations. I tell my students this all the time. Racism is not a light switch, right? So I'm going to say, I'm going to say it certainly hasn't helped. I don't think intellectual property law is helping the issue. And uh, in some cases, it actively hurts. So this is one example I can give. I can give an example of how trademark disenfranchisement or more specifically, right, racist trademarks uh, shape our racial hierarchies in a post-Jim Crow world. Um, Those trademarks are intentional in some ways, right? They're meant to maintain a racial hierarchy that um, people are trying to dismantle. So, yeah, you got rid of slavery, but you have replaced it with Aunt Jemima as a symbol of what you think black women should be doing, right? And so if that is is the one-to-one trade, that's not a great trade, we have to do better than that as a, as a nation, as a culture. So some of these trademarks that are getting canceled now, the Aunt Jemimas uh, and the Uncle Bens of the world, they're both ways of marking racism and also perpetuating racism. And there are lots of structural causes we could talk about uh, for the lack of influence that people of uh, color have had in this country, right? Um, breaking up uh, families intentionally maintaining illiteracy, Jim Crow laws, stealing land from indigenous peoples. I don't want to underplay those because I think um, that's they are real property and tangible actions like that are a really important part of um, historical narrative writing and the structure of power. All that said, you know, we talked about how people of color had limited access to um, 
copyright and patents, and they're represented in these really problematic ways in trademarks. So there's a cumulative effect to that, and there's an effect on history, I would argue. So I will end with this example, the case of SunTrust Bank versus Houghton Mifflin, and that's a case in which Alice Randall, who's an author, gets sued by Margaret Mitchell's estate for writing this book about the same plantation that Scarlett O'Hara grows up on, um, but she's telling the story of Scarlett's half-black, half-sister. So folks like Henry Louis Gates pretty famously testify, famously to IP lawyers, uh, testify in that case. And um, they make the argument that, you know, it's not just copyright that's at stake here. It's not just whether Alice Randall gets to publish this book or not, or whether this book infringes on copyright, it is also a question of who gets to control historical narratives in this country. And, you know, that's a, that's playing out in the 90s. So, you know, some of these conversations are also really high profile to get back to one of your earlier questions in the 90s. They just, they look different and maybe they're more contained than they are right now. Um, But this is a negotiation of historical memory that we're doing in a lot of ways in this moment. So, you know, that Washington football team uh, that that will not be named and the Lando Lakes Butter trademark um, and Aunt Jemima, these are all trademarks that are getting canceled right now, right? Whether whether by activism or, you know, actual... um, legal cancellation. Um, And I think they're evidence of a national refusal to really value histories of people of color. Um, There was a Saturday Night Live skit that night that Dave Chappelle was hosting. Mm -hmm. um, And it showed there was this skit showed all these trademarks getting fired. um, And, you know, Uncle Ben sitting there and he's like, he's like, you know, the one benefit of this job of slavery is job security, right? And it's just this hilarious moment of like, like, yes, but also, you know, what is the job you're arguing for? So I think this is a battle over history. Um, It might not be the most consequential part of that battle, but battles for history happen in books. They happen in images. They happen in intellectual property. And I think it's really important for us to ask the question um, of what kinds of space we can open up for new histories um, and for people of color when we start to get rid of relics of slavery and also we create um, new and more liberating intellectual property norms. Yeah, I just think that's a good place to end. But thank you so much for uh, taking the time again to to speak with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I I think our listeners will too. Great. It was a pleasure to be here. Great questions. And um, I appreciate the, the time and opportunity. So that's it for another episode of So-Called Oreos. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Make sure to follow us on all social media at So-Called Oreos. And you can email us at socalledoreos at gmail.com. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. And please, please remember to like, rate, subscribe, and leave a review. Until next time, bye.